0: This morning's message is a uh, a culmination of, I would say, about eight or nine weeks of the Lord just uh, working deep within our hearts and in our minds. Uh, without getting into all the details of everything, there the Lord just, in the only way that the Lord does, He just introduced a thought to our hearts, and then confirmed it over and over and over and over again. And it kind of set me and us uh, on a journey. And the heart of that is around the idea of reverence. And um, reverence is not something that we talk about all that much. Reverence for God, reverence for his presence is not something that that is discussed often. And that's because in our current culture, reverence is simply something that is almost non-existent. Reverence is not something that, you know, when I was younger, um, you know, there was a, a huge push of respect and reverence and honor to certain people and, you know, your elders and your parents and this and that. And that's something that has just completely and utterly faded away. Uh, A lot of it, and I don't want to blame every horrible thing on politicians, but most of the time it is their fault. Um, But just the way we see the leaders, you know, of our country just destroy each other and there's just no respect and honor just doesn't exist in our culture. It just doesn't. It's gone. It's completely dissipated. And, And I think even significantly, even in the church, reverence is something that is just completely dissipated. And, and so as, as the Lord just started to put this on our hearts, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, if I'm just honest with you, I didn't even know where to start. Even in, even in studying, this, the, the, the Lord just started to draw us to reverence and I just started to dig deep in the word of God. and You know, what is reverence? You know, what does that really mean in a practical way to my life and to our lives before God? What does it mean to have reverence for God? And what does it mean to be irreverent towards God? And am I reverent before God? Do I have a reverence for the presence of God? Does our church have a reverence for the presence of God? These were all things that 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 I had to really just stand back and bow down before the Lord and just begin to seek him Uh, from a place where I didn't even really know how to start. And so I just started to study the word of God and just pray that the spirit would lead and guide me. And I realized very, very quickly that reverence is a significantly important thing, not just in scripture, but to God. And I just wanted to to start this off, this this conversation off just with a couple scriptures so that we could understand the weight of reverence and what it really is. And the main the main message this morning is gonna be out of Malachi, but I just wanna hit this really fast. This is Isaiah 11. This is a prophecy about Jesus and specifically about the spirit of God that would rest upon Jesus during his ministry. This is Isaiah 11, one through three. It says, then a shoot will spring up from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now that's Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which is reverence for God. And in verse three, it says, and he, Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the reverence of God. So I just want to I want to make sure that we understand what just happened here. Reverence just got elevated above every other thing that was mentioned. So it says that Jesus, the root of David, Jesus, when he comes, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and fear of the Lord or reverence of the Lord. And out of all those things mentioned, it says that Jesus will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the reverence of God. That just means as much as we value wisdom and understanding, as much as we value counsel and strength, as much as we value knowledge, the thing that Jesus chose to delight in was reverence for his father. Now, that, that's a pretty epic statement. That's a pretty epic moment. That's something that, that we should pay deep attention to, that of all of those things that the Spirit of the living God is and brings into our lives, the thing that Jesus chose to delight in was reverence in the fear of God. Then in the New Testament, in Hebrews 5, 7, when it's discussing Jesus' earthly life, it says this, it says during the days of Jesus' earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. So I want again, I want to make sure that we don't just read past that and go on about our day. What that means is, is that Jesus, while he was in the flesh, Jesus, while he was on earth, walking the earth, while the spirit of God rested upon him and he ministered to this world and he presented to us the heart of the gospel and he died for our sins, while he was on this earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him, that's the father. And it says that the reason that the father heard him was his reverence. That means that out of all of the reasons to hear Jesus cry out to God, the God wanted us to know he heard and listened to his son because of reverence that he had for him. He's his only begotten son, but God wanted you to know it was his reverence that made him heard. He performed great miracles and had significant power, but it, God wanted you to know that it was his reverence not his ability to do these great powerful things, not the, the spirit activity in him, not, not the wisdom, not the knowledge, not anything. It was his reverence for the Father that God heard him. So reverence is significant to Jesus. It is significant to the Father. And anything that is significant to Jesus and is significant to the Father should be significant to us. Can I get an amen? amen. And so that's reverence. And I, I I for two, three weeks now, I, i've I've toiled, literally, wept, toiled, not slept over how to teach us reverence and define reverence, because I felt like I'm only going to get one shot at it, and I wanted it to be the most practically powerful, genuine biblical centered definition of reverence. And this is what uh, the Lord just, after studying the scriptures and after looking at reverence in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord, in the New Testament, the reverence of God, after just looking at every time God mentions reverence, discusses reverence, and talks about reverence, what I, I, I put together, all of it into this one statement, and it, it, it's incomplete, it's, it's not perfect, but I think that it gives us a great head start in the right direction. And this is how I want to define reverence. Reverence is a deep awareness of God. It's a deep awareness of God with a deep respect for his presence that results in a loving devotion for him, his will, and his ways. Reverence is a deep awareness of God with a deep respect for his presence that results in a loving devotion for him, his will, and his ways. I, I want to I share with you just a, a, an, a comparison, an analogy, a teaching point to help drive this home a little bit, but I almost don't want to do this because it's going to fall so short of the seriousness and the power of what we're actually talking about, but I feel like it's just something that might get us an inch closer to a practical understanding. When I was in college, I had uh, the privilege of working for the president of the university. His name was Dr. Khan. He was probably the greatest man I have ever met in real life. He was just a man that commanded respect. He was deeply wise. He was incredibly successful. Uh, he took uh, the university that I attended from nothing in the 50s and in one generation in the top 100 schools in the country. He was just, he's just a brilliant man. And, and I, when I walked, he's the one, you ask all of my teachers growing up, you ask any adult that was an authority over my life, they thought they were, That you ask any of them, nobody could shut me up. I didn't speak in his presence. He was just, he just commanded. He's like 6'5". He woke up every day and ran five miles. He ate perfect. He, he, he could just solve problems before you even knew there was a problem. He just was brilliant. He was just a brilliant man. And I got, for a year, I got to sit and work with him. And, and in a year, I maybe said 19 words. I just listened. And I wanna give you the, the amount. One of, the, one of my just, I just wanna brag for a minute on the immense responsibilities I was entrusted with one of the things, the primary things I was entrusted with was to get his breakfast in the morning from the cafeteria. Okay. So I'm just trying to be humble. I know that that's, it is what it is. I had great opportunities. And so I had to go, but he, 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 the same breakfast every single morning, like a robot. All right. He had, he had a bagel, he had a pineapple and he had several pieces of fruit and he wanted them cut in a certain way so that he could just come in and get them because he didn't have time because he just was running the universe and he just had to come in and, and get it. And so they taught me how to cut it. And as God is my witness, I would go and get the tray and I would walk back, please don't drop it, please don't drop it, please don't drop it. And I would get there and I would get the knife and I would cut it and multiple times, I just ate a piece or threw it away if I didn't think it was cut good enough. And as dumb as that sounds, it's, it was real because that's just who he was to me, and who he was to to that college, and who he was just in our lives, he was just a great man. And I, there was just this innate thing in me. I wanted to please him. I I, I wanted I wanted I did not want to disappoint him. I wanted things to be as 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 he wanted them to be because he was brilliant and whatever. If he wanted his pineapple cut in a triangle with a half end so he could put it right in his, then that's what I wanted to do. Like I whatever he wanted, that was what I wanted to do. And and. He does that's about the only one in my life that I could really point to in this way and 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 say that. And so I, I hope that there's there's somebody in your life that maybe, you know, the closest you can maybe get, even if you don't like them, there's still a, a boss in your life, or there's still somebody in your life, an authority figure in your life, that there is an amount, even if it's forced reverence, even if it's an unhealthy fear, there's still when you when you're around someone where they have an authority over your life and you you treat them differently. And you you operate differently, that, that's that's reverence. And when it comes to God, reverence is is the beginning, truly, and the end of, of the way that we treat God. And and I, I wanna I really want you to understand: if reverence is a deep awareness of God with a deep respect for his presence that results in a loving devotion for him, his will, and his ways, irreverence is not being aware of God his presence and spiritual activity in your life resulting in a dishonoring lifestyle. All right, and so I I want us to look at, there's, a, there's a, a book in the Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And it's the book of Malachi. It's a short book. It's only a few chapters long. And what makes Malachi, he was a prophet, and what makes Malachi and his ministry and the book of Malachi different from many other Old Testament prophetic books or, or books where, where God brought a prophet onto the scene to minister, sometimes to rebuke and to lead the people. The difference in Malachi is Malachi comes at it. God, God speaks through Malachi to address things in Israel, to address things in his the lives of his people from the perspective of reverence. The whole book is from the perspective of reverence. Yeah, there are some sins that he deals with. There are, there's some sins that he deals with. But even the sins that he deals with, he deals with them from the perspective of reverence, not even necessarily from the perspective of the law. In each thing that he does, in each thing that, that he does, the, the, he addresses the way at which each action is irreverent towards God. And so I want you to, I want us, as we kind of get into this, I want us to understand that. And I, before we do, I just, I want you to see the few things. There's five big things that Malachi addresses. We're not going to talk about all of these things in detail this morning, but I really want you to understand the weight of what Malachi is addressing. And I, the the very first Thing that he hits is their worship. And I'm not gonna spend hardly any time on this. I'm gonna hit this because we're actually gonna come back to this and that's gonna be the main thing that we look at this morning. But the first thing that he looks at is their worship. It says their worship was irreverent and heartless. In Malachi 1 and 2, it says that they were doing the bare minimum they weren't honoring God in any real way. They had no respect for God. They had no reverence for God. And they, they proved that in their corporate worship. They proved that in their temple worship by bringing uh, dead and sick animals to give to God. They were doing the bare minimum. They were, whatever the minimum was, they would drop right below that line and they would do that. And so Malachi addresses, this. he actually starts with this. He starts with the heart of worship. He starts with reverence in worship in reverence in the gathering, reverence in the temple. The second thing that he hits, he goes he goes with irreverence in their heart. So God actually calls them out and he says that, they, that he literally says, I can hear you and I see your heart. And he says, and you say in your heart of hearts that this is a nuisance is the word that he uses. To worship me is a nuisance. To go through these motions, it's, an, it's a nuisance to you and it's annoyance to you. It's a hindrance to you. To follow me and to worship me and to be my people and and to allow me to be your God, it's an it's a nuisance to you. It's an annoyance to you. It's a hindrance to the way that you actually want to live your life. God calls them out for this. The first one, they're similar, but the first one it was irreverence in their worship. Their worship was irreverent and heartless. It was bare minimum. Then he goes straight deep into the individual level and he says, "I see your heart. I see who you are and the way that you think about me and the." way that you think about worship and the way that you don't value me and that to follow me and to, to worship me and to allow me to be the God of your life, it is actually an annoyance to you. I'm an, I've become a nuisance to you and it, it hinders the way that you really want to live your life. He says all of this is coming from irreverence towards God. The third thing uh, he says is there, he addresses a very specific sexual immorality that God had told his his children. He said, don't marry marry within the Israelites. Don't go and sleep with these other women from these other religions. He said, because a part of this, they actually addressed this multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Over and over and over again, they were drawn sexually to these other women, but in order to have relationships with them, in order to sleep with them, they always made them bow down to their gods in order to be in a sexual relationship with them. And so I, I just, I think I can speak for all men Uh, that if you aren't close to God and you wanna sleep with somebody and she says, bow down to bell and you're like, all I gotta do is bow down to bell and then we can go sleep together, done. And they put their knee down and they went. This was something that was repeating over and over and over again. But the heart of what Malachi says, the heart that they had towards God was how dare you tell me who I can sleep with and when I can sleep with them. That was their reverence towards God. God laid out the structure of sexuality. He he laid out the structure of what was right and what was good and what was wise and what was best. And though the context has changed greatly, the irreverence towards God about sexuality is a million times worse today than it was back then. And before we start judging the world, it's just as bad in the church as it is in the world. Different message for a different day. Four, and I just want to give a warning here. I understand that that some of the things that we're going to talk about today, there's a a great opportunity for you to be offended. There's a great opportunity for you to feel bad. There's a great opportunity for you to allow guilt to come in and shame to come in. And I'm going to just beg you, fight that feeling. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction, then let conviction come. It'll be the best thing that ever happens to your life. But don't... Let yourself, don't let the enemy twist up your heart, your soul, and your mind. Don't let yourself get triggered and go into a deep hole of guilt and shame and and run from this. We all have mistakes. We all have sins in our past. We have all done the wrong thing more times than we've done the right thing. God still loves us. And I'll prove that to you here in just a minute. But the fourth thing that he he hits, and he hits it directly directly, He hits them for the way the men are treating their wives. He says, I I, I want you to understand. God says, I'm standing as a witness to the wife of your youth and you are mistreating her. You are not being kind to her. You are not lifting her up. You are tearing her down. You're being unfaithful to her in your heart. You're being unfaithful to her physically and sexually and you're divorcing her. And God says, I want you to understand, this is one of the most profound statements God ever made. First, he says, I hate divorce. I want you to remember that. God says, I hate divorce. He says, and the reason that I hate divorce, he says, because when two, the man and the woman become one soul and one flesh, he says, what binds them together, he says, is a portion of my own spirit. He says, so when you stand and you make a covenant, you're not just making a covenant with one man and one woman, you're making a covenant with one man, one woman, God, and his spirit that binds you together. So when you rip it apart, it's God. The reason why this is so irreverent and the reason why God brings this up, he says, because who do you think you are to destroy my daughter or who do you think you are to destroy my son and leave my son when it's my spirit that bound you together? And I was the one that stood as a witness to the covenant and the covenant the vows that you made, that you made. That it wasn't just a the preacher there that day and it wasn't just Aunt Thelma and it wasn't just all the people that showed up. He said, I was there that day. My spirit is what bound you together. It was me that put you together. It was me that joined you together. And what I joined together, no man can ever separate. And I want you to understand the weight of the way God actually teaches about divorce. It doesn't say no man should not never separate. It says no man can separate it. That means that no matter whether you go on and marry somebody else or not, your soul is attached to that person you stood before the God of the universe and vowed to die with. And I know that that's heavy, and I know that that's hard. And I get it. But God says, it, 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 it is, he literally says, you cover them with violence. It's the worst thing you could do to leave the wife of your youth or to leave the husband of you. It's the worst thing you could do to mistreat them, to be unfaithful to them. It's the worst thing you could do to disrespect them and not love them. It's the worst thing that you could ever do in your life is to destroy the woman or the man that God gave you. There's a weight to that because I know that our culture doesn't, and I know that even our current Christian culture doesn't, but marriage is God's. And the church flips out when another group wants to take marriage, but why on earth would God be upset for them taking marriage when we don't respect marriage as it is? I mean, the church is infamous for destroying the world. They are the world, they don't believe in God. The Bible says, save your judgment for yourself. Let them do them their thing. If they don't believe in God and they're not followers of Christ, they have no reason or right or anything to be able to follow this, but you do. So how dare you get so up in arms about what another group in this country is doing when we ourselves should humble ourselves before God and repent for the distastefulness and the disrespect that we show God in our own marriages. I know that's hard to clap. I know, I get it. But the unkindness that we show each other, the disrespect that we show each other, we tear each other down with our words. Beyond that, not just in marriage, he also addresses the fact that we break faith with each other, that we choose to slander each other, hold bitterness in our heart towards one another, tear each other down. The way that we just destroy each other verbally and in our hearts, that's why Jesus said it's like murder. He says but this is this is the heart of this is how God how it's it's his, it's his son it's his daughter. You know how you get when someone is mean to your child. I've seen the nicest most gentle people turn into serial killers in a second. Yet we even in the church And Paul warns us many different ways, but one of the ways that's so so direct, he says, if you're not careful, you're gonna devour each other until it's gone and it's over. You will destroy your friendships. You will destroy your church. You will destroy your circles. Not everybody else, you. He goes on in the fifth thing, and I'm just, just so we don't, I don't even wanna get, everybody get lost in this. They rob God financially. We have a lot to deal with. I don't want to touch your God and mess with money this morning. But he says outright, he says, you're robbing me. And they say, how are we robbing you? I've asked you to give of your money, your resources, so that my house is always overfilled, so that there can be worship, there can be ministry, there can be a gathering, that, there can, there, that the worship of God never stops, that the ministry never stops. I've asked you to give this. In fact, God says, I've told you that some of that money's mine because I gave everything to you. And before everybody flips out, I, the, sometimes the only time people study Bibles when it comes to money. They said, we're not under the law. Let me explain, let me explain the Bible to you. In the Old Testament, 10% of the money was God's. In the New Testament, 100% of the money is God's. All right, so don't go there with me because I actually study the Bible. So I'm I'm not gonna go there long, okay? I'm not gonna go there long. But this is the last thing that he grips their soul with. He says the reason and it's more important why they're not you don't value the worship of God you don't value the ministry of Christ you don't value the expansion of the church you don't value the advancement of the kingdom you value boats and houses and cars and foods and steaks and pleasures of life so you give 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 take 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 to yourself and leave the church hungry there's more if 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 the if the church in america truly gave what they were supposed to give or gave out of a generous heart, the church alone in America could end a significant portion of world hunger, could end a significant portion of homelessness, could end a significant portion of everything. And another thing all of our conservative Christians get so upset about is the government's trying to take over stuff and the government's trying to fix stuff. The government is having to try to do stuff because the first calling and responsibility was on the house of God and the church. We failed miserably at that. Now the government's trying to do it and we hate them for it. I'm not a socialist. I think socialist is the worst way to run an economy. I'm not getting political. It's just called math. I know basic math and it's horrible. All right, but you cannot... Disobey God, and then be upset when the government is using your disobedience and your failure to gain power and control. If we were obedient, that door would not be open for them to use. All right Now I, that's heavy. I know. I, I'm gonna get off money. I'm gonna get off money. Let's just go back f- five minutes. We'll go back five minutes. We're fine. Everybody was like, the divorce thing's the worst thing ever. money, I'm out of here. It's funny, the American church trusts the church with their kids long before they trust them with their money. Says something right there. The heart of this is reverence. And I wanna go and I wanna start where God started. God started with worship. God started with, with the house of God. God started with the gathering, the corporate worship. And the reason I believe without a doubt that he starts here with reverence is because if you don't have reverence for God, in the gathering, you will never have reverence for God as an individual throughout the course of your life. If if you can't, in, in New Testament terms, if you don't have reverence for God on the one hour or two hours where it is supposed to be all about God, and you can't even make that one hour all about God, you will never, your life will never be all about God. That, that's why in the Old Testament, every time God brings a word, every time God brings discipline, every time God brings rebuke, he starts first with the house of God. He goes then to the priests and then to the people. Because whatever whatever's going on in here is going to filter out to the course of the rest of our lives. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, we are the light of the world. If we have the light, darkness cannot win. If darkness is winning, it's because we are not operating as we should be operating. So he starts here, and this is how he starts. And the the first verse you're gonna see up here is gonna be verse six. But the first five verses, God does something that I think is so profound, and it's so good, and it's so holy, and it's so our God. He spends the first five verses, before he brings a single rebuke, before he opens up this conversation at all, he spends the first five verses to establish one thing, how much he loves them. That's what the first five verses of Malachi are. He says, Jacob, I have loved you. I've loved you. I've brought you from nothing and I have loved you. I've loved you deeply and I have hope for you and I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. I love you. He says, Jacob, I've loved Esau. I've hated. And he says, now look at your life. Look at all that I've done for you. In New Testament terms, it would be, look, you exist. I created you because I loved you and I wanted you to be. And even in your sin, in your darkest moments, in your darkest hours, in the depths of your evilness in your heart, that was when I sent my son Jesus to die for your sins. And then I adopted you and I made you my son and I made you my daughter and I filled you with my Holy Spirit. And Jesus will guide you and will keep you cleansed, will cover you with righteousness so that when you stand on the day of judgment, you will be seen as holy, righteous, and innocent and you will spend eternity with me. God says in in New Testament speak, If God was having this conversation with us, those are the things that he would have said. And he would have said, this is how much I love you. And I want you to know that. As we begin this conversation, I deeply love you. And I'm coming at this, not from anger, because he's not angry. If anything, he's hurt. And he says, but I I need to talk about these things. And so then he begins in verse six, Malachi 1.6, with a simple question. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is your fear of me? Where is your reverence of me? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Now you'll notice a pattern here. All throughout Malachi, God says something and then they say, we don't know what you're talking about. And then God explains it to them. So one of the things that I realized in my own life, I think that you'll realize in your own life, is there are things we're being irreverent towards God about. We have no reverence towards God. And there are things that that you don't realize how bad it really is and how difficult it really is and how irreverent it really is. So this is the part where we need to, as a family, we need to be humble before the Lord and know that if the (laughs) Lord is bringing rebuke or conviction to our lives, it's because he wants to set us free and he wants to bless us in the end. And so he he asked them. He says, if 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 a father receives honor, and a master or a boss, you know, or a governor or a politician receives receives fear and reverence and respect. He says, if I'm your father, where's my honor? And if I'm your master, if I'm your king, if I'm if I'm your leader, where's my respect? Where's my reverence? Where's my fear? And then they say, hey, how we, what are we doing wrong here? And then he explains. Malachi 1, 7 through 9, he says, "'But you ask how have we despised your name "'by presenting defiled food on my altar? "'But you ask how have we defiled you "'by saying that the table of the Lord is contemptible. "'When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, "'is it not wrong? "'And when you present the lame and sick ones, "'is it not wrong? Try uh, "'Try offering them to your governor. "'Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? "'Ask the Lord of hosts. "'But ask now for God's favor. "'Will he be gracious?' Since this has come from your hands, will he show you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. So God actually takes an incredibly uh, logical stance here. He says, listen, and in this day and age, this is not the financial conversation. That's a later conversation. This is the worship. This is, this is bringing offerings and, and, and gifts to the Lord and sacrifices. The heart of what was going on was they come and brought sacrifices because their sins needed to be cleansed and covered and forgiven so that they could worship the Lord. And so God, in his mercy, instead of wiping people out, he brought this opportunity of of this in so that they could worship the Lord. And they were asked to bring unblemished animals. They were asked to bring the first and the best. They were asked to bring the, the good of their stock, the best of their stock, in order to offer this to God. But instead, they were bringing the blind and lame animals, the ones that couldn't walk, the ones that were sick, the ones that were dying or close to death. They were doing the bare minimum. They had, their heart was not in it. Their heart was not there. In just a few minutes, God just point blank says, I've become a nuisance to you. It's because it's an annoyance to you, like in our terms, like, and it's an annoyance to go to church before you can hit the lake. It's an annoyance to be a part of, of the service. It's an annoyance to get in there and be here on time. It's an annoyance. It's an annoyance. We bring the bare minimum to God. At the gathering, this is what they're doing. We're we're, we're bringing the bare minimum. We're here, we're in the room, but our heart's not there. We're here, we're in the room, we're singing the words, but it's not worship, it's not a focus on God. We're here, we're in the room, but we're, we're aware that we're in the room, but we're not actually acting like Jesus is in the room with us. We're bringing the bare minimum. And the priests allowed them to do this. And as you go through and you study this, this is something that we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah over and over and over again. Every time they get to this place to where where, in when they gather together, where God is not truly glorified, where God is not truly honored, where God is not truly revered, where true heart worship is not happening, God has one response. Anger? No. He has one response. And he says it in Malachi 10, 1.10 here. Oh that none of you oh that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle useless fires on my altar. I take no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will accept no offering from your hands. And then he makes a statement I want you to hear this. He says, "For my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the table of the Lord is defiled. As for its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a nuisance. And you turn up your nose at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring offerings that are stolen, lame, and sick. Should I accept these from your hands, ask the Lord. He says, would you take these to your governor and expect favor? Let me put it in New Testament talk. Let me put it in modern language. Would you go and treat your boss or the authority in your life or your governor, would you go and treat human leaders in your life the way that you treat God on Sunday mornings? Would you be late to a meeting with your boss every day and expect to keep your job? Would you stay on the phone uh, uh, looking while, while you have an opportunity to worship Jesus? Would you just be sipping coffee, staring off in the space while your boss is trying to give a presentation? God's asking a very logical question. Would you treat your human leaders the way that you're treating me? The answer is absolutely not because you have more reverence and respect for human leaders than you do the God who created you and saved you. Like that, that's the heart of what God's getting at. That's the heart of what God's getting. he says, all those other things that we talked about, why did all those other things exist in their life? Because they had no reverence for God in worship. They had no reverence for God in the gathering. They had no reverence for God in the temple. They had no reverence for God in their one-on-one relationship. It was a nuisance to them. And when you have no reverence for God here, you will have reverence for God nowhere. And so these are some hard conversations to have. But then, then, God, and I'm not going to read it because I don't, and this is a heavy message and I don't want to make it even heavier, but he spends a few verses where God says, This is what I'm going to do as a good father to sons and daughters. He loves us, so he treats us like children. He loves us, so at times he disciplines us. He says, I'm going to bring a curse on your land. I'm going to make things very difficult for you. He says, So that you'll know that what I'm saying is true. Because in the end, he wants to bless them. In the end, he wants to prosper them. In the end, he wants to lift them up. In the end, he wants to make them the greatest nation in the world. He says, but I'm not gonna make you the greatest nation in the world if you dishonor my name. He said, because I will be made great. I will be seen as great because he is great. This is the thing I need you to understand. God is holy above all things. He's holy, holy, holy. He's righteous. He's just. He's wise. He's greater than you could ever imagine. He is so great and he knows his own worth. He will not be treated less than who he really is. That's why his heart is, don't worship me at all if you aren't gonna worship me according to my worth and my value. He said, close the doors, close the doors because you would never treat human leaders the way that you treat me. I'm not talking about just us. I'm talking about the American church in general and some of it just us. And then he reminds them of something in in Malachi 2, verse 4 through 5, as he comes up there. He reminds them about the covenant of worship, the initial covenant that he made with the the Levitical line, with the priests and with the temple. He reminds them of this. The first few verses, he says, I'm going to bring a curse on the land so that you know what I'm telling you is true. He reiterates this in in verse four. He says, then you will know that I have sent you this commandment so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, which I gave to him. It called for reverence and he revered me and he stood in awe of my name. So God said, "I, I want you to understand the covenant that I made with Levi, which stands for the Levitical line, all of the priests. This actual covenant that he made, he made with Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, the first high priest. He said, I want you to know what my covenant of worship is. I want you to know what my, the foundation of worship is. I give you life and peace and you give me reverence. I act like a good father to you and you honor me like I am a good father. I provide for you and I guide you and I lead you and you worship me. I become your king and I fight for you. And then you treat me like a king. And God says, so because I love you so deeply, I can't let you keep having life in peace if you have no reverence for me. And he says, so for a little while, I'm gonna take the peace so that you will know that this covenant it's real and so that you it will continue. The thing that I want you to see in this is that though we don't take the worship of God seriously, God takes the worship of God seriously. Though we don't treat him with any reverence, though we don't understand how great he truly is and we don't treat him in that way, God will be treated great or he would rather you shut the doors and not worship at all. This is a heaviness. There's a heavy thought to this. And I wanna, I wanna let everybody off the hook real fast, because I can feel the weight in the room, especially for anybody that showed up late this morning. I'm sorry, I saw somebody in the parking lot and I waved and I meant it and I love you, and life happens, okay? All right. But I, I, I want you to understand the weight of this. Malachi is written first to the priests. The entire book is written to the priests, second to the people. Why do we have such, and and we do, and I'm just being honest with you, we have a great irreverence towards God. And over the last weeks, I have prayed and prayed and prayed and the Lord just opened up my heart. And he really just showed me how we got to this point. I don't mean our church, I mean just his church in this country Over the last 30 or 40 years, the leadership of the church, the priests, the Levites, they have completely, overall for the majority, completely misled God's people. We, the priests, have misled God's people. We've done this in various ways. But one of the most dominant ways, and I think that it probably started off very genuine, was 30, 40 years ago, we realized there was this thing happening where there was a lot of older traditional churches that could not let go of yesteryear. And they would, they would, rather, they would rather people not come to their church than dare move the organ and change anything. And it's funny, but everybody that grew up in church right here knows exactly, that's why you're sitting in this building right now. Right? And somebody along the way said, we've got to create a church where people want to come to because nobody's wanting to go to these churches because there's so much tradition, so much religion, God wasn't even involved in most of them. And so they started to to build churches. And I remember one, I'm not gonna call any names, but I remember one of the the very first ones that kind of began to change the culture. And they created a term, they deemed this term seeker-sensitive. Raise your hand you ever heard of that. Seeker-sensitive. It's this term in the church world where we've gotta build a church and we gotta build the system and we gotta orchestrate things so that people wanna come be in the room. And initially, the heart was in a genuine place. We want people to worship God. We want people to come to Christ. We want people in the room. So there's a genuine start. But this this began to change the culture because what you had was you had all these religious, traditional churches that would, would rather not anybody come to their church, including Jesus. Then you had over here, you had all these churches that were like doing everything they could, having rock concerts and and uh, giving away ice cream and all the, you know, just crazy stuff. I did a bunch of research in some of the first few weeks. One was a rock concert, one was ice cream. This is back in the 70s and 80s when you didn't need that much, I guess. So I, Just for clarity, somebody was like, they're giving away ice cream, we're gonna go there Sunday. It's good, I'll eat some ice cream. They started building churches for people and what started to happen is these churches started to grow because they're giving away ice cream and you know, playing Bon Jovi That was the first song. And so all the other churches that were struggling, they wanted to do that. So they started to build their churches like that. And over the course of five years and 10 years and 20 years and 30 years now, the vast majority of growing churches, they're all built for one purpose and one purpose only to get people in the room. And the system is built for the people to be in the room. And, 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 and pastors, they would begin to stop, they stopped teaching things that would offend people and drive people away. In fact, I'll read you this. I don't wanna spend long here, but uh, in Malachi, he accuses the priest. He says, a, a true priest is supposed to have instruction in his mouth. Nothing false should be found on his lips. Uh, your, the goal is to use the word of God and turn people away from iniquity. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. But he says, but you have departed from the way and your instruction has caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, you are irreverent basically. So I in turn have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the matters of the law. Meaning they stopped teaching certain things so that the people wouldn't get upset. So there's a lot of churches and it would be easy to call out all kinds of names, but people stopped talking about sin a lot. People stopped talking about certain sins a lot. People stopped talking about, they started picking and choosing what they wanted to teach. And they found the things that were popular that people loved to hear about and the the entire churches became about that thing, faith, you know, whatever. They They were picking certain parts of the scripture to teach about and then they were ignoring other parts. While they were building the system For people, And so we conditioned the priests, the preachers, the leaders of the church. We conditioned an entire generation for you to think, and I'm sorry that we did this, for you to think that church is about you. That it's about what you want. That it's about you coming here and getting something. And if you're not coming and getting what you want, you'll go down the street. We turned Christianity into consumerism. And we did it, not you, we did it. The priests did it, the preachers did it. And we did it, just to be honest with you, the vast majority of us, we did it because instead of finding our worth in Christ, we found our worth in how many people are sitting in our churches. So we traded our souls and our callings for you to think we're great and for us to look good so that we can go to big conferences and tell people how awesome we are and how we grew our church. Like that's the reality of the American Christianity. That's the vast majority of it. And I have to tell you, I wish that I could tell you that I I did this right, but man, I got saved when I was 16, 17, I started preaching. When I came, when they asked me to come pastor the church, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew one thing, I knew that I needed to preach every word of this book, I've never faltered there. And i confidently can tell you that. But as for everything else, I'm like, what am I, what are we supposed to do? And we don't even have where to go. I didn't know you weren't supposed to have a church in a shopping center. I didn't know that everybody else would hate that. I didn't know that. When are you gonna get a steeple on the building? What? And so we started, early on, we started looking, how do we, we, what do we do? What are the things that we do? And so we started borrowing things from other churches and they're doing this and they're doing this and they're doing this and, and the heart was there. But then I realized in so many ways, we've built a church that's for you and not for God. And we've conditioned you, it's, it's, it's okay, it's all right. You can be 20 minutes late every single Sunday for the rest of your life, it's just God, what does he matter? You'll never be late for your boss. But we've let it happen because it's not about God, it's about us and it's about what you want. It's about you being comfortable. It's about you getting something. Over the years, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people come to the church and we've had a bunch of people leave for the dumbest reasons. There's no steeple, that's a real one, that's not a joke. You don't have Sunday school. Where the small groups aren't good enough. You know, I live 16 minutes away and 15 minutes is my minimum. It's too early, service is too early, it's too late. I don't like the worship, the music's too loud, they have guitars. It's not loud enough, it's not rockish enough. You don't sing modern songs, you sing hymns. I don't like the seats, I don't like the pews. It's too dark in there. That's one, somebody roasted us on Google, one star. (laughs) Didn't even stay for the message. It was too dark in there. Think about the reasons you've thought about leaving. Think about the reasons why you left where you came from. He's too loud. He's too quiet, he's not passionate enough. In two weeks, as God is my witness, Somebody wrote me an email. You don't dress right. You need to dress better. You need to wear at least a collared shirt. I wore a collared shirt. The next week, as God is my witness, somebody's been coming for two years, you're changing. (laughs) You're people pleasing. That's not you. I realized something a long time ago If I was doing this to please you, I'd kill myself. And that's the truth. But for far too long, if I'm just honest with you, this is the part where I just have to repent of my own sins. For so many years, a pastor in this church, as much as I wish it wasn't the truth, my goal was for the church to grow. My primary goal wasn't for God to be worshipped. And because my primary goal was for the church to grow, there's so many things that were put in place in order for that to happen. And it is a great sin against our God. See, when we gather together, it's not about you, and it's not about what you want. It's not about you being comfortable. It's not even about the type of music. It's not, it's not about that. It is about the God of the universe. It's about the savior, Jesus Christ. It's about him being worshiped. And when I preach, it's not about me showing off gifts. It's not about you giving you a little nugget to get through the week. What's really happening is that this is the voice of God, that that's how this should be seen. It's the voice of God. Will we get up and run around and walk around and be on our phones and get out and use the bathroom 15 times and come back in? This service doesn't do that, but the second service is like a popcorn. I'm gonna yell at them. (laughs) My heart of what I want you to hear this morning is, is it is so much more than I've made it. And I'm so, so sorry. And like the people in Malachi, over and over and over again, God said something and. And they were like, but how are we doing that? They genuinely didn't know. And over the last six weeks, I found myself in that place. (laughs) I was trying to do it the right way. But when you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you'll never do it the right way. And so the last few days, especially, I've just, I've been in such a bad place. weeping I'm 36 years old and the Lord has called me to be a shepherd and at the end of this I will stand before him not you we will all stand before him And I need you to understand something. The vast majority of our current cultural Christianity is not Christianity at all. It would be easy to slam other churches and other groups, but they are God's. We have to start in our heart and in our mind. so one of the things the Lord has called us to do and we're going to talk more about it later and we're not going to start anything until August, September but we are going to and it may be difficult and we may lose people but we are no longer going to build a system for the church to grow we're going to build a system for reverence for God because if we don't have reverence for God, we don't have anything. And I wanna end with this. This is gonna be the foundational thought because it's not just a thought and it's not just a gimmick, it is real. It is more real than I think we understand. We're gonna build and base things on one reality that when we gather together, whether that's on Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon, or Saturdays, or whatever it is, when we gather together, we're gonna build things like there is a throne on this stage and Jesus is sitting in it. And that's how we're gonna treat worship. That's how we're gonna treat our time together. That's how we're gonna structure things. And when I stand up here and preach, We are gonna act like this is God's living word, because it is. We're gonna treat it like it's the voice of God, because it is. We are gonna be a house of reverence before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because if we don't treat our God holy, no one will. And he is great, he is mighty, He is holy. He created us. He saved us from our sins. He's had mercy on us. He's put his spirit in us. He's made us sons and daughters. We owe him everything, everything. And so for me in this house, we're not just gonna serve the Lord. We're gonna serve the Lord according to his will and his ways. And I would beg of you, come on that journey with me because I think that the Lord is doing a great and mighty thing and I want to be a part of what he's doing. Amen? Amen? You guys will stand. Oh, Father, we just come before you, Lord. Father, just for the sins of my own heart, I am so sorry. Father, for what I've made it at times, I am so sorry. for the times that we haven't treated you as holy, God, I am so sorry. I know that you deeply love us and I am so thankful. And I know that you've brought us to this place because in the end, you wanna give us freedom, you wanna bless us, you wanna prosper us. And so I just wanna thank you, Lord, for being so patient with us. I wanna thank you, Lord, for your rebuke, I wanna thank you, Lord, for your discipline. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the strength, God, to press forward. And that this house, God, this group, this family, Father, that we would reverence you, that we would give all of ourselves to you, that we would give you the honor that you deserve. That this would be a group of people, Father God, that worshiped you from the depths of our hearts. Because I believe, Lord, that when you are lifted up, when you are glorified, and when you are praised, Father God, all things are made right. And you draw people to yourself in that moment. I love you, Lord. In your holy name, amen.